Hello everybody and welcome to yet another one in our series of financial well-being podcasts brought to you by the crack team of myself David Lloyd. I'm a writer, uh, a broadcaster, a general man about town. Uh, Chris Budd, who are you? Oh god, that's an existential question. <laughs> who am I? Well, I, I can I use author? Yes, you it can. It still feels a bit weird using that name, um, but uh, yeah, I suppose I'm, I write things, so therefore I'm. Well, author. you've written the book, the financial well-being book, on which yeah. these podcasts are based. So I think if you're writing something, you're a writer. It doesn't necessarily make you a good one, but you're a writer. <laughs> Great. In that case, I'm calling myself a writer, and <laughs> nobody else can make any additions to that, please. <laughs> Just in well, case. Well, uh, have we discussed? I think your latest book, which I finally got round to reading, and you reviewed on Radio Bristol. Thank you. It I reviewed great it review. very well. I enjoyed it very much. Manners from Heaven by Chris Budd, available at all usual outlets. It's <laughs> amazing what a free pint would do. Isn't it? <laughs> now and that fact, was the voice just before the disembodied voice of Tom Morris, Tomo, our producer. Introduce yourself, Tom. So yeah, I'm a chartered financial planner at Ovation Finance in Bristol. What um, a coincidence, because yeah, that's Chris's funny, company. That, Good Lord. <laughs> Uh, what, are, what are we talking about today, Chris? Well, today we're going to hear from a lady called Iona Bain. Iona is a freelance journalist who runs a website called youngmoneyblog.co.uk. Do go and check it out. Lots of really interesting stuff on there. And she regularly writes about money issues facing young people. And I'd like to highlight money issues facing young people because right at the moment, about four metres away, my daughter at half past 11 is still in bed. <laughs> when she could be out earning money. Exactly. And she's oh. been working part-time in our company, Novation, and uh, she decided that she wasn't going to work this week because she's been working quite a lot. She's working two days a week. <laughs> oh, poor flower. That's just tough, isn't it? The How age old is 16. she? 16. 16. Yeah. So actually, you know, getting into the world of work, it is quite tough, actually, I think. And to be, I'd just like to say, in those two days a week she's been doing, she probably did double the amount of work her father has done. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I got your back, Ella. You did a great job. <laughs> um, right, well, we look forward to hearing more from Aona in a while. But before we do that, we need to get some of our regular features sorted out. So the new word section, if you remember, this started with hygge from Denmark, which is a word that we'd not heard before and that doesn't have a direct translation into the English language. So we're looking at other words that might have some impact on uh, money or financial well-being. What have you got for us this week, Chris? Today's word, David, is Again, forgive pronunciation, lagom. It's a Swedish word, it's spelled L-A-G-O-M, and it means just the right amount. And it may be best summed up by a Swedish proverb. Now, these letters have got two dots over the E's, I don't quite know how to pronounce that, but the Swedish proverb is lagom ar bust, which means enough is as good as a feast. It's a really interesting word, because on a little further investigation, it's quite a controversial word. And, or, or concept. I uh, was reading a particularly interesting article in The Guardian online by marvellously named Richard Orange, who describes the concept as being behind the Swedish love of moderation and dislike of things that are too flashy. So very relevant to financial well-being, I think. It is indeed. So if you are a multilingual person that's got a particular word that you think could be used in this section, remember it needs to be a word that's not directly translatable into English and that perhaps has some connection with money or financial well-being please send it in julie will give you the full list of how to get in touch with us 
at the end of the podcast. Now, talking about regular features, obviously the one that's gathering momentum week by week, month by month. It's turning into a juggernaut. It started off as a tiny snowball. It's now a massive avalanche of public opinion cascading down an alpine slope. It's our regular feature, hashtag tomo. So uh, we ask you to send in ideas about how you can perhaps save a little bit of money and they're coming in thick and fast. We've got one here from Simone Gnesson at Simone Gnesson. She was on podcast 17. Has a great tip. Buy something unworn or used at full price and later seeing it on sale, question mark. Take it back and buy it again at the cheaper price. <laughs> oh, I see. So you buy it for the full price Take it back, get your money back at the full price, and then buy it again in the sale. In the sale. Uh, that, that, that seems eminently sensible to me, although Mrs B once did something slightly worse than that. <laughs> she bought a very expensive dress in the sale and then took it back a month later. The sale was over and she got the full price back for it. <laughs> well, that's fair. Now, I must actually chip in here but without taking the, the thunder away from Tomo. I did a car boot sale recently on the on the selling side. My partner and I, Gail, decided we needed to do a little bit of decluttering. So we uh, loaded a load of stuff in the car and took it up to, there's a big car boot sale near here at Cheddar that happens every Sunday morning. Got there at half past six in the morning, set up. Well, we made £81, so it wasn't exactly a fortune, but got rid of a load of stuff that had just been sitting around the house. Going back to the uh, tight-ass way, I think a good way of turning some of the clutter in your the back of your cupboards or on your old clothes rails into cash. Let's get down to the main event. Tomo, what's your tight-ass Tomo tip of the week? Oh, it's a good one this week. Trainsplit.com. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I've got a stag do coming up, because, yeah, I'm still young enough to go on stag do's. <laughs> what's uh... a stag do? <laughs> up to... It rot, doesn't it? Up to uh, up to Birmingham. I looked at the train price. I was like, that seems expensive from Bristol to to Birmingham. So I went on train split. It's about two thirds of the cost. Unbelievable. And how many journeys is it splitting it into? Well, I I haven't figured that out yet. I just clicked on the button and then it picking up the tickets. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so there is now because I'd heard about this. The fact that if you buy lots of small single journeys, it's cheaper. But there is now actually mm-hmm. a website that will do that for you. Yeah. And uh, when you print it off, you get a stack of 20 tickets. <laughs> uh, yeah, so a third off is what I got. And I'm sure you can, you know, you imagine if you're going all the way up to, to Edinburgh from, from down here or going to London for the day. I can imagine oh, some trainsplit.com. Yeah, yeah. Okay, another tip as well, but obviously you have to be in a certain category. I am now over 60, so I have a senior. No. I know, difficult to believe. I have a senior rail card. It cost me, I think it was £70 for three years. But I get a third or more off my train tickets, and it works out really, really well if you're using the train, even on a fairly regular basis. It's paid for itself first two or three journeys you use. So uh, always look into rail cards. There are a whole load of different well, young person's rail card, students' rail card. Always look into that and as a way of saving the, money. you can use the card with the train splitting. Oh, so you can whammy. reduce it even more. Double well, bubble. Yeah. Right, go. I'm going to look into that then. Mm. That's fantastic. That's a great tip, Titus yeah. Tomo. Well done. Right, Chris, remind us again about who today's interviewee is. Today we're going to hear from Iona Bain. Uh, she is a lady who writes a blog called The Young Money Blog. She is on Twitter at, at IonaYoungMoney. 
Uh, she writes about financial issues relevant to Generation Y, David. What is Generation Y? Ever heard of it? Uh, I believe it's the one that follows immediately after Generation X. <laughs> well, correct. Uh, they're also called Echo Boomers because they're the children of parents born during the baby boom. Generation Y, for a lot of you, are millennials. Millennials. So anybody born in the 90s and maybe the 80s. And Iona writes um, about their issues. and she's very. She, we had a really interesting chat about their issues. She's also written a book called Spare Change, How to Save More, Budget and Be Happy with Your Finances. So right in our space. Well, let's hear what she has to say. Iona, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Just tell us a bit about yourself, first of all, and how you came to write a book about money. I originally trained as a musician Um, I went to a specialist music school in Edinburgh and then I studied music at university. And then after that, I decided to be a musician for a few years and also a music journalist. And I thought, wow, I'm I'm really living the dream here. I get to, you know, play instruments for a living and be in bands and write songs. And I just thought it was awesome, basically. Uh, And also, you know, I got to earn a living writing reviews for a Scottish newspaper, which was great whilst it lasted. But music journalism is not the most reliable of career paths as I quickly found out. And I also found out that it's very, very difficult to make a living as a musician. So I started becoming very focused on money. Was I earning enough money? Was I being financially independent? Uh, Was I really making my way in the world? And I realized that was the basic question that pretty much everybody my age was asking. You know, I was in my early 20s and I was under the impression that I should have been able to leave home and and get a really good job and and be paying my way. And I realised that the economic environment was not actually allowing me to do that particularly. It wasn't just because I didn't have the right qualifications and I didn't have the right skills to get on in the world. You know, I had a very good degree. I, I went to Oxford University. So I expected that that would, you know, really help me in the world of work, but but it didn't quite pan out as smoothly as I thought it would and, and it was the same for all my friends. So before before you just expand on that a little bit can I just go back because I've long been fascinated by musicians and money. Yes. Because um, I've got a few friends who are professional musicians and I hope they're not listening to this podcast because they're all quite tight. <laughs> Right. That doesn't <laughs> but, surprise me. <laughs> but I realise I'm also a musician. I play in a band. And what's the, what's the phrase? A musician is someone that dra- that pays £5,000 for equipment, drives 500 miles to get paid 50 quid for a gig. Yes, <laughs> so that sounds about right. They're all tight because it pays so poorly, doesn't it? Absolutely. And because there's no correlation between ability and success. So I know so many brilliant musicians who worked so hard and got absolutely nowhere. I used to be in a brilliant band with some incredibly talented, skillful musicians, and they had to give up because it just wasn't worth their while anymore. And also for me, I didn't want to turn music into a dreadful chore into something that that I felt compromised about. I wanted to keep it as as something that would give me joy. Um, I'd worked so hard at it. I didn't want it to become a source of, of, of pain and frustration. So I think for me, the decision to consider another career path was 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 me adapting to the new economic environment and realizing well actually nobody's going to give you a job nobody's going to hand anything to you on a plate and it sounds obvious but actually grasping that means being entrepreneurial and deciding I'm actually going to go out and try and find a niche so um, my dad being a financial journalist said to me well why don't you consider setting up a blog 
and, and, and talking about young people and their financial issues, because you know all about that. You're talking to young people all the time. You know, you can talk with authority and experience of that. Writing about money and economics, it, it, it's very, very difficult, but it is so satisfying because you feel like you're actually writing about something that affects everybody and that really matters. If you start looking into it for yourself and, and, and getting to grips with it, you will feel so much more empowered and you will no longer feel like you're out of control with your money. Yeah, that's a great word. That, that control, being in control is, is such a big part of, uh, of, of being happy. Can I just go back to one thing you said? So the economic climate was stopping you from, from earning a decent living. What did you mean by that? A generation ago, my parents, for instance, when they left university, their ability to get on the housing ladder and stabilise their finances and have a, a steady income, it was just so much greater. And, and, and I, I guess that was partly because, you know, the economic landscape a generation ago was so much less complicated than it is now. Um, and because so many people are leaving university with degrees, it's not quite as special as it used to be perhaps and people maybe are going into the world of work thinking that because they've got qualifications that means they'll be able to get work no problem and also for my generation there's a pressure I think to find meaningful work and that pressure wasn't necessarily around a generation ago I think people went into the world of work and they, they found whatever job they could with their qualifications that they had and it wasn't always a job for life and it, and it didn't always pan out but for the most part I think people found secure steady jobs that lasted an awfully long time whereas now young people accept that you know if they get a job aged 22 or 23 they may not even be in that job in another two or three years time. The thing is when I left university the statistic then was that uh, people who uh, their first job after university tended to last two years that was the average then has it really changed? Well I think that it has changed in as much as employers are no longer as paternalistic as they once were. And I think that employers are perhaps not as concerned with holding on to employees. I mean, I've walked away because I felt that being self-employed was more advantageous. It meant that I could um, keep myself open for more opportunities and I could work from home. And I feel as if the digital revolution has not really been grasped by employers yet. And they're not really allowing people to have that more balanced work life situation that, that I think is it, that's the future and and I don't understand why um you know a young person if, they, if they're not being treated well by an employer if they're being asked to work more hours and they're getting they're not necessarily getting uh pay rises they're not necessarily getting that that generous benefits package and I mean even if you look at something like auto enrollment um I think that young people when they realize just how small the contributions are they'll be really quite shocked in the future and i don't think that's being properly explained to them presumably that's a market isn't it i mean your point about the pensions i absolutely agree with the the, the final salary schemes or defined benefit schemes as they're now called that not even my generation i haven't got any of that um that you know that the younger generation definitely can't have any of that because it, it, it just isn't there. there there does seem to me be a bit of a disconnect here though iona because uh, I do a lot of work in workplace well-being, mm. and this is a massively big area for, for employers and HR departments who recognise they've got to treat staff well and care about their whole person if they're going to keep them employed. So I see loads and loads of work from employers who think they're doing the opposite of what you're, you're feeling. 
Well, that's interesting. Therefore, perhaps there is a two-tier work environment now in the UK where there are those enlightened workplaces. And I, and I do see them and I've come across them where there is that emphasis on, on well-being and, and trying to do what's in the interests of the employee. And perhaps it's because I've worked in the media and perhaps the media is, is ironically, despite, you know, appearing to embrace a lot of the changes that have happened in the last five years, that actually they're, they're quite slow to adapt to wider trends in the workplace. You said that there's pressure to find meaningful work. Where does that pressure come from? I think social media plays a huge part in it. And I don't want to sound as if I've got ownership over knowledge of my generation in a way that the older generation don't. I, I accept that a lot of older people can get, you know, have a great deal of insight into how younger minds work. But I don't think the older generations quite appreciate just how influential social media is. Maybe not even as much from my generation, but the generation coming up, young people feel under pressure with aspirational lifestyles constantly being pushed at them by social media. And because the lines are being blurred with, um, you know, advertising as well, part of that is this idea that, that we all need to be doing work that we enjoy, that we find meaningful, that, that, that really makes a difference in the world. And of course, all those things are ideal aspirations, but it can take years for people to find that work. And I'm really interested in this connection between money and mental health. And I think that, you know, Martin Lewis is doing a very good job in exploring that much more in depth now. Um, and we're becoming so much more aware of how we use our money uh, in healthy and not very healthy ways and, and that we need to be aware of that connection between our mental well-being and how we spend our money. It's not necessarily the money and our mental health because money is only a tool, isn't it? It's expectations. Yes, it's and, what and we do with the money, yes. So what, are, what other issues do you see the, uh, the younger generation facing? Well, I mean, I cover the whole issue of the housing market extensively on the blog. I, I have a personal interest because I am a homeowner I, I was able to get on the housing ladder about five years ago with the help of my parents. And I feel so sorry for so many of my friends who want to have that same opportunity and, and they can't because they don't have parents who can help them in the same way. You know, my parents, you know, got married and bought a, a house in their mid-20s. I'd say that's quite unusual now. Um, so I think it's uncertainty around the housing market, uncertainty around you know, when to progress to these life stages that were just absolutely normal and conventional for the previous generation. I think those are the big issues that my generation faces, not just on a, on a financial level, but on a, on a social and emotional level as well. One of the areas we look at in the Financial Wellbeing book is self-limiting beliefs. And we've done a few podcasts on this subject as well, something I find really interesting. Um, I wonder if I could just perhaps put a slightly controversial view here that assuming that you have to buy a house is a self-limiting belief? Uh, possibly, yes. I think that we need young people to question much more why they are doing things the way they are doing them. And I think that process needs to start at school. And I think that that's also one reason why I'm very exercised about social media, because I feel as if it is perhaps handing people opinions that they then you know, take off the shelf a bit like, you know, going to the going to the uh, shops and buying a, a suit off the rack. They're getting their opinions off the rack. And I and I do feel that, that 
there are certain accepted conventional beliefs, possibly like buying a house, um, that young people need to interrogate and they need to ask themselves, is this right for me? And I, yes, yeah, so I was just going to say that I'm, 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 I'm have a lot of sympathy with the minimalist movement that, that has um, sprung up in America where people say, look, we really do not need all the possessions that we have. We can cope with our computer we can cope with just a few shirts and, and some trousers and underwear and toiletries and the basics. But we really don't need, you know, vast amounts of possessions in order to make us happy. And a lot of them don't believe necessarily in home ownership because they think it ties them down. Um, and I can understand that point of view. But I think that comes from a more coherent, you know, overall philosophy about the world um, that suits them. Um, rather than, you know, I think a lot of young people who say, oh, you know, I don't, I don't want to get on the housing ladder anyway, you know, that mortgages, they're, they're, you know, why would I want to pay into a mortgage? I think a lot of the time that's because they're scared, uh, and they don't necessarily want to, you know, make hard decisions about their spending choices right now, rather than because they're making some coherent, you know, um, well thought through decision. I think the same could go the other way, actually, though, couldn't it, where people are buying uh, a house because they think that's what they're supposed to do. Even this this phrase, the housing ladder, Mm. implies that the only way is up. Um, And there's there's two aspects to buying a house. There's the, the fact of the investment and there's the fact of living somewhere. You know, houses are for living at the end of the day, aren't they? And mm. um, for perhaps my generation and certainly the generation before me, we've benefited massively from the upsurge in house prices. But of course, that doesn't mean to say it's always going to be the case, does it? No, absolutely. And you're totally right about there being those two different aspects to it. And a young person who is thinking about buying a house does need to consider it first and foremost as a home in, in an area which, you know, they like and, and where they feel like they can put down roots and where they feel like they can be part of a community and have a sense of identity. I'm not sure that any of that has to come along with owning a home. No, but if you have committed to a place for a certain period of time, you do have a stake in trying to make that place as, as, as good as it can be. But I do think that it, that sense of belonging and identity, you can cultivate that if you are a tenant. But I just think it's so much harder. You talk a lot in your blogs about the advantages of saving and of spending less on unnecessary things. How does that go down with your young readership? Very difficult. If I'm honest, it's very difficult to talk about understanding the commercial pressures that are being exerted on young people. It's hard to get that message through to them. And I feel like I am up against lots of different forces that are telling them the exact opposite of what I'm trying to say. Well, you're up against the entire world of advertising, aren't you? Exactly, exactly. And and even with my book, it's beautifully presented and it's been presented in a package that can be understood and can be enjoyed by young people because it's got beautiful illustrations and quotes all throughout and it's a bit tongue-in-cheek and it's, you know, it's not a, a very heavy, serious prose intensive book it's it's very light and accessible but by the same token when you actually read it the message is you really need to understand why you are spending your money and that that obviously there is no correlation between earning and spending more money and being more happy and it sounds so obvious but if it was obvious and simple to carry out that message then we would all be doing it so much more okay so i'm now going to make a controversial statement on behalf of probably my parents, <laughs> people like my parents, the people who will be listening to this, and they will be listening to the economic climate was stopping you. Um, there's pressure to find meaningful work. There's pressure to spend. 
I suspect some of the older generation might be listening to this thinking, well, it's not everybody else's fault. Take responsibility for it. Stop blaming on everybody else and do something about it. Oh, I have a lot of sympathy for that point of view. And on the blog, I think I try to promote a message of personal responsibility. But I'm aware that for a lot of young people, the idea of personal responsibility has a it has an unfortunate association, perhaps, with greed, with with selfishness, with maybe even a more right wing political sense whereby it's all about the individual looking out for themselves and not necessarily having idealism about the world. And I've been careful on the blog not to go down that rabbit hole too much because I don't want good money management to become the preserve of a certain group of people with a certain political outlook. I think it's for everybody, whatever you you think about politics or society. A huge part of, of, of growing up and gaining experience and wisdom is proactively teaching yourself the things that you need to know because there are so many gaps in our curriculum, especially around money. And even now we have personal finance on the curriculum, but it's it's not comprehensive. People have to take it upon themselves to teach themselves about money. And, and it's not easy. But that's why I wrote my book and that's why I write my blog, because you can do it. And, and it's never too late to start. And even if you have certain beliefs about money, you can challenge those beliefs. It's a bit like cognitive behavioral therapy. That's what CBT seeks to do. It seeks to rewire those beliefs that have become embedded in your in your mind and, and replace them with more helpful, productive thoughts. Financial education is a really interesting area, actually, something I'm quite interested in. Uh, we're sponsoring a certificate in our local school for um, financial education. And there's a few people in the industry who are starting to try and get involved because the government aren't doing anything about it. If you could walk into a group of 17-year-old lower sixth and said, you've got an hour to talk about money, what would be the sort of things that you would want them to be talking about and thinking about? Well, a lot of the issues that we've already touched upon would have to be centre stage in, in relation to how you spend your money and, and interrogating what you see online in particular. And because schools, I think, have been slow to realise what the online revolution means for the next generation, maybe we're not teaching young people how to be savvy with regards to advertising. So I think I would talk about that. We need to get young people in the savings habit in a way that we are trying to do now with pensions. I wonder whether we could be nudging 16 and 17 year olds into a savings product. It wouldn't necessarily have to be tied to a bank or a building society. They start saving 10% as a matter of habit. And, and to only have that in place for a couple of years and hope that that will be enough, that young people will just get used to the idea of living on 90% of whatever income they have at any given time. So actually habit is, is, that's quite a big thing we can try and teach people, isn't it? A little and often, don't notice it going out, all that kind of stuff. It's control, isn't it? Back to the phrase that you used earlier on, it's control of your finances and just knowing where your money's going. And that makes you, that forces you to think about where your money's going. Yes, because when you save, that is money that nobody's going to take that money away from you. That money is there for you in the future. 
and 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 it presents opportunity and freedom and i think you know getting into that mindset where saving money is empowering that's what we need to be teaching and young people don't really grasp those life skills at that age because they haven't had experience of the world they don't realize that those savings are a lifesaver when you know your boiler breaks down they they just don't know that because they haven't experienced it yet but if they already have that mindset before they have an emergency and then they can take advantage of those savings that's when they realize ah this is why i was told by mrs so and so that saving was such a critical life skill to have. Yeah, there's somebody, um, I, I don't know who used this phrase, my apologies, I can't credit them, but it's cheesy, but quite good, actually, that uh, savings is sending a present to your future self. That's a really nice way of putting it, because I think a lot of the time we present saving or general financial management as being, you know, it's dull, it's dry, it's boring, it's just something that we all have to do. So that phrase is really nice because it kind of talks about it in a more positive light. Well, Iona, thank you so much for joining us in the podcast. Um, good luck in your um, challenge to try and get young people to engage with their money and, and perhaps take on the advertising industry. I'm power to your elbow for that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes, I need all the luck I can get, I think. <laughs> well, interesting chat with Iona then, Chris. Quite a few things to pick up there, I thought. Any thoughts from you? Yeah, I, I think um, the message that she said quite early on about how little people put away, um, there is absolutely no doubt that uh, the workplace pensions are not going to give people a meaningful retirement. People have to put in more than their employers are putting away for them. In the private sector, public sector different, but in the private sector... The danger, of course, though, is, and she was advocating, well, look, if I'm working for somebody who's not going to look after me properly and give me a proper contract, I'll I'll go and become self-employed and I can dictate the terms under which I work. Speaking as a self-employed person myself, that's all well and good. But the danger with that, of course, is from a financial point of view, is that if you don't then take alternative steps to create a pension and put some money aside for yourself, your employer might not be putting an awful lot by for you in auto-enrolment, but a small amount is going to be better than absolutely nothing. So if you are going to go down that self-employed path, make sure you get proper advice and make sure you're still putting some money away. Mm. I'm really intrigued by this idea that there might be a disconnect between idealism of youth and good money management. That putting money aside actually conflicts with some young people's ideal that they don't want to be money grabbing and and like the wealthy, perhaps maybe their parents, I don't know. It's a very interesting idea. It is a good point and I think probably when I was in my 20s and maybe even a little bit older there was probably a degree of truth about that actually. I was always felt that I was a little bit of a rebel, I didn't want to do what the man said and therefore saving money was for squares and so I wasn't going to do it. Now clearly being a little bit older and getting getting closer and closer to retirement age, I actually we thought to put a bit more money aside a little bit sooner. But can we explain that to uh, younger people? I don't know, Tomo, you're a young person, what, <laughs> but you're, you're clearly a, a, a very different young person because you work in the financial industry and you can, you can see on an experiential, on a day-to-day basis, how important that is. Yeah, I'm fortunate in that regard. But I always think with a YOLO generation, you on. only live once. Okay. Um, and there's that mindset of, do you know what, I might not be here tomorrow. Well, actually, um, the chances of you know a 20-year-old, the chances of them living to 90 are actually quite significant yes. now. Statistically, and none of us might be here tomorrow, no. but actually most of us will be. Yeah. So rather than gamble on the fact that you might be one of the ones that won't be, I think you all probably need to be making... It's balance, isn't it? It's all balance. It's not an easy thing to work out. 
what that balance is, but I think all all one way and all the other is not particularly healthy. I just think there might be something in this idea that if we, I mean, maybe that's actually part of what we're doing, what Iona's doing. We're trying to talk to the younger generation about happiness, not about accumulating wealth. Mm-hmm. Maybe if that's a distinction we can break, um, that they maybe are seeing the the uh, accumulation of wealth as being a negative thing, we can turn that into, well, actually, it's not accumulation of vast wealth, it's reasonable wealth. So, thanks very much uh, Chris for that uh, fascinating interview with Iona and thanks Iona for the time that you've given we will be um, giving out some of Iona's books so watch out on Twitter where we'll be doing a little competition to give away some of her books for free well I think we've covered an awful lot today Uh, really interesting as ever to get your input and your thoughts as to what you've heard today please do keep in touch this podcast works so much better where we're getting ideas back from you, but from uh, the original Titus Tomo, from Chris Bird and myself, David Lloyd. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time for another Financial Wellbeing Podcast. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. We've created us a credit card mess. We spend the money that we don't possess. Our religion is to go and blow it all, so it's shopping every Sunday at the mall.